Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes of this show, head to cageclub.me slash believe. And to check out other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you have an idea for a show topic, would like to be a guest, want to tell me how much you like the show, or how much you hate it, or just want to say hi, send me an email, john at cageclub.me. That's j-o-h-n at cageclub.me. When I was a kid, I would usually write my letter to Santa around this time of year. No matter what was on the list, I was always sure to add peace on Earth. You know, a Java Sandcrawler, Castle Grayskull, a Nintendo, and peace on Earth. Obviously, this was strategic, designed to emphasize just how much I was good list material, but I also meant it. I think we all do when we say how much we want world peace. But what does it mean? What are we actually wishing for when we say that? I think it's an important question. John Lennon's Imagine is probably pretty close to what most of us are thinking about, but aside from being unrealistic, Lennon's vision is also pretty horrifying. A world of automatons with no opinions, beliefs, or distinct cultures sounds pretty dystopian to me. I don't think any of us really believe that a genuine return to Eden, with everyone holding hands and prancing among the flowers, is an authentic goal of peacemaking. But we probably all do agree that working for peace is worth doing, even if the end goal is fundamentally unachievable. And if it's worth doing, how do we do it? I've seen a lot of liberals take to social media exactly as they did four years ago to encourage us to reach out to Trump voters so that we can understand them and move forward, which strikes me as being as well-intentioned as it is stupid. I've reached out to plenty of Trump voters, only to be called a libtard and a snowflake and a communist at pretty much every turn. Even the term reaching out feels pretty vague to me. And again, what are we trying to accomplish there? In the spirit of Thanksgiving, the only holiday we celebrate that revolves specifically around coming together, I wanted to talk to someone with a much better sense about all this. So I asked my friend, Gil Barcelo. Peacemaking is Gil's profession, and I'm grateful he agreed to share his insights with me. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. You're most welcome. Thanks for inviting me. So one of the things that I noticed that you talk about on your own website is your experience growing up in Israel and what that kind of taught you about conflict um, and being in the uh, Israeli military as well, um, mm-hmm. kind of firsthand. Israel is one of those things that Americans, uh, the majority of them have strong opinions about and also have never seen firsthand right um so it's it's an interesting dynamic um what do we what do you think in your um your own experience that americans or or just non-israelis tend to get wrong um about the way that we portray that conflict and um and what it's like i i think the way the way Americans or uh, non-Israelis tend to get wrong about this conflict is the same thing we tend to get wrong about everything else, which is we only see the polarities. And so what you get for the most part is people who are either um, self-identified as pro-Israeli or as pro-Palestinian. And it's very easy to see this conflict. And for some good reasons, as um, as a in 
an irreconcilable war between the two sides. And the reality on the ground, of course, is a lot more complex as it is whenever you dive into the particularities of any situation or conflict. And so in, in, my, in my work as a compassionate listening facilitator, what we strive to do, one of, the, one of the things that we do with the organization, which for the listeners who are not familiar with it, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to empowering individuals and communities uh, to transform conflict and strengthen cultures of peace, is um, we, we teach a skill set that's designed to bridge those polarities. Mm-hmm. It's designed to cultivate a capacity for... Um, for each of us to listen to ourselves very deeply and connect to others in a way that's uh, dignified, in a way that maintains our own uh, respect to ourselves and to the other person on the other side. And we we take um, annual delegations to both Israel and Palestine, which I've been leading, and more recently also Alabama, which is more racial, racial justice focused, where we teach those skills um, in in the context of of these particular environments, and so and so that's kind of a long way of saying I'm looping back to your original question. I think there's a lot of misinformation um, and a lot of heat and a lot of passion and a lot of um, a reactionary energy around all of it, which I wholeheartedly understand and have participated in as well. Um, I, um, for a long time, once I moved away, maybe I'll talk about my Israeli upbringing a little bit at some point, but only when I, when I moved to the U S when I was 23 or so after my military service, after, you know, having been exposed to that conflict firsthand, both as a combatant and a, and a, um, civilian that I was really able to, to zoom out and to, understand just how much pain, suffering, intergenerational trauma is embedded in the very fabric of everyone. And to me, that has to be appreciated first. And that's that's the nugget that I would really love to to offer anyone who's willing to have a conversation about this. So let's let's talk about your upbringing. Um, I I think one of the other misconceptions, or maybe not even misconceptions, but conceptions uh, (laughs) that um, isn't quite aligned with the truth. Americans tend to think that every country is as religious as America is uh, in in the same way. And so (laughs) when I talk about um, the Israeli-Palestine conflict and the, the state of Israel itself, um, it's, it seems to me that a lot of especially kind of more sheltered uh, conservative Americans tend to think that um, every Israeli is also religiously Jewish. Um, and and this, this sort of awkward, you know, that, like not all Palestinians are devoutly religiously Muslim and not all Israelis are devoutly religiously Jewish. And, right. um, and that there's a understanding the sort of cultural divide between, um, you know, cultural Judaism and religious Judaism. Um, mm. and, and, and so, you know, Americans tend to think of conflicts as religious wars and tend to think of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as a religious war, at least in my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you grew up, um, did you grow up in a in a religiously um, uh, affiliated Judaism in Israel, in Israel, or or 
or not. And and so what is your what is your upbringing? How how many generations um, Israeli were you uh, when you when you grew up? And and how how big or small a role did religion play in your um, in your worldview development? Mm-hmm. I was born and raised in Tel Aviv, which is uh, Israel's most liberal city, and I was mm-hmm. raised in a secular household. Uh, my my parents were were first generation Israelis. My father's family came from Hungary, and uh, after uh, World War II, and my mother's family came from Poland. Both my parents were born in Israel, and that's where I was uh, born and raised. And so you can you can think of me as kind of a cultural, like culturally Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, um, I would say, growing up in Israel, there's a fair degree of privilege uh, being Jewish and particularly Ashkenazi Jew in with its own particularities based on the the, the uh, Israeli culture and context, but not unlike what you see here. Um, I think one of the one of the one of them is there's no need for me to there was no need for me to prove my Judaism or to prove my Israeliism or any of that. Everything is kind of was kind of handed to me. And so and so in my household, religion um, or holidays, Jewish holidays were more about coming together as a family, coming together as a community. And so, and so my, my initial sense of spirituality or connection to spirit, I think really stemmed from that, mm-hmm. not so much a religious upbringing, but more the, the coming back to the community, coming back to love, coming back to connection. And that I got to experience at home in spades. So when you, when you reflect on the, again, the, the, polarities that we tend to see, you know, Muslims and Jews, I would say religion tends to play a part in in this conflict as it does. I mean, there's a lot of uh, Jewish zealots who over time have cultivated this this belief that that the vision of Israel has to be the grand Israel, the great Israel um, that includes what is now known as Palestine or the occupied territories. However, you know, depending on where you stand. And similarly, on the Palestinian side, some some of the conflict was um, their religious factions. There's Hamas ruling uh, Gaza that definitely has more of a religious bent and a religious ideology. And with that said, I think it's a mischaracterization to really think of that conflict as religiously based. Um, I would say, from a Jewish perspective, or from an Israeli perspective, it really stems from um, a desire to live a life of um, safety, basically a need for safety, which might seem very strange for our listeners who uh, clearly identify Israel as the stronger of the two, which is absolutely indisputably right. Uh, but I think it's important to understand the 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 Jewish heritage of intergenerational trauma, particularly culminating in World War II, that has led to the founding of Israel and this kind of Zionistic view of of um, the strong sabra, the 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 um, desire and the need to really have a sense of of control over one's destiny and live in safety. And from the Palestinian perspective, I think the main the main value is 
sovereignty. We're talking about a people who um, it's like if I moved into your house one day and I told you, well, it's nice that you've been living here your whole life, but this house is actually mine you'd be really, really upset and you do whatever it takes to get me out of the house. I You're right. And if you look at it from a very, very simplistic, from a very simplistic perspective, that's what's happening. It's a desire for sovereignty and of course, dignity and safety as well, which is something that has been lost uh, in this conflict, particularly with decades of occupation. It's, it's, it's needs-based more than religious-based, right. right? Look at it from the Israeli side, it's uh, it's all about safety. If you look at it from the Palestinian side, it stems from the need for sovereignty, and and we're we're looking at two people who have uh, a legitimate a legitimate claim for the same land, who have not yet found the the capacity to really live um, live together and and accommodate both needs on both sides. You and I both found ourselves in New York City in the early 2000s, so mm-hmm. like just post 9-11. What, what year did you move there? 2002. Okay. Um, and so we, we were both around the same age and um, going through a lot of the same things, kind of trying to figure out what to do with our lives, right? As people who moved to New York in their okay. 20s <laughs> tend to... Uh, tend, what is it all about? <laughs> tend to be, right. Um. So yeah, it seems like you kind of you kind of meandered for a while. Um, how did you how did you settle upon doing work in um, you know compassionate listening and, and peace peacemaking and uh, all that sort of thing? Like what where where did that door open for you? Great question. I think it all stemmed from um, my upbringing and my own exposure to the. And so, growing up in 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 Tel Aviv, I was um, I was I was a teenager in the '90s, which was a very tumultuous time. Um, if any of our listeners know or remember, we had the Oslo Accord in '93, which very soon uh, after fell apart, and there was a, a huge wave of violence on both sides that included bombing attacks. Um, on Israeli cities, um, one of them was Tel Aviv, which I lived, which I lived in, and and so at the time, as a kid, as a teenager, I would take the bus to school, and there would be a bombing um, every week or so, and so there was a, a a huge sense of anxiety and fear doing daily activities such as just commuting to school. And so that was the environment that I grew up in. And just to clarify, the there's a lot of violence. There was a lot of violence. There still is a lot of violence on the other side as well. Um, I, it's, it's actually very disproportionate, the amount of power and violence that the Israelis inflict on Palestinians. I want to be very clear about that. This is not an equal conflict in uh, whatsoever. But that was my share, my own experiences that I shared, that I that I had growing uh, growing up. So that was the first piece, and then I joined the military, and um, I served in Lebanon as a commander of a scouting unit, which basically meant that we were on the front line working with the artillery in the back and helping them um, basically aim their missiles at the Hezbollah as they were 
um, attacking uh, Jewish and Israeli cities and villages from the southern strip of Lebanon and into Israel. Again, I could go into a whole rabbit hole about the history of that. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a long one, but that was my job. And so the the result of that was that we were, I was in a very exposed position. We would get missile attacks into uh, different stations. We would get bombed on a very regular basis. And so something that was very normalized in the context of Israeli society where military service is compulsory, right? No one makes a big deal out of those kinds of experiences because you can't. I mean, you talk about a whole a whole culture, a whole society that's completely traumatized by experiences such as the ones that I'm describing now. And so all of it was very normalized. And it's only when I moved to the U.S. um, at the age of uh, 23 and started, as we said, pursuing my own sort of identity and, 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 um, and passions where I had the opportunity of really noticing the amount of trauma that I was carrying in my body. I remember one experience in particular where I was riding the subway and I, I, was, I was in theater school at the time. And that was my first passion, my first career. <laughs> right. And I, I had brought with me my, my dog tags from my military service as a, as a prop, as a sensory thing to, to, to work with because that's what actors do. You know, you use your own history to... Uh, pour it into the roles that you play. And I was working on a, a role that was some some veteran, a Korean War veteran. And so I used my own experience to connect to that. And so I remember sitting on the subway with my dog tags on me, just kind of touching them, just rubbing them very gently. And all of a sudden, out of seemingly nowhere, I'm having a full flashback and I'm back in Lebanon being bombed, feeling the anxiety, the shortness of breath in my own body as I'm riding the subway in New York. And, and I had to leave the train. I mean, it was some kind of a panic attack or some, something like that. And I had to leave the train and catch my breath. And I did. But that was one experience out of a few that really informed me about the depth of trauma that I was still carrying in my own body, which was a turning point for me realizing that the realizing first of all the personal implications of the experience that i went through and then broadening the lens and thinking about a whole culture of a people all sharing the same kind of collective trauma embedded in them and what does it how does it inform the way we see the world how does it inform the way we relate to one another how does that perpetuate cycles of violence that that we've been engaged in for 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 decades if not centuries now and so that was the opening for me to begin to inquire and really look into the somatic expression of trauma how that actually registers in the body and over time i i began to lean into it more really seeing the connection between our individual need for healing because the collective is really the sum of us, of all of us individuals and, and the implications for the collective. And so that's how I got to the Compassionate Listening Project and became a facilitator. And since then have grown to um, both be a, a transformational coach where I, I, I teach people, I guide people 
towards their own resiliency, their own inner resources, so they can basically do a similar work deciphering um, their own experiences of pain or trauma, however they manifest, because living in the world is traumatic uh, for all of us, and really harnessing those experiences towards their own healing and their own unique medicine so that they can relate to them differently and through that actualize their full potential. And, 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 and so all of it, you know, I mean, all our identities, the way I am, if I, again, broaden the lens and think of the connections, not only between Israel and Palestine, my own experiences, I think there, I think there's a human experience there of the, 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 um, the pressure cooker that we're in just by our being human in this body and the amount of inherent pain or trauma that comes from that, but both on the individual level and the collective level that we need to sort through in order to really arrive at a place of healing and connection to ourselves and to each other. I imagine before you kind of entered into this work on, on, you know, for others that you must have realized that there's a lot of work to do on yourself, right? Um, Absolutely. <laughs> before you could do that. Um, so, so what, what was that work? How, how did you personally, um, before becoming someone who guides other people through this, how did you personally deal with your, with your trauma that you, you know, was coming to the surface? Hmm. There, there are multiple levels. There are multiple layers to that. Mm-hmm. So, I think first of all, I, I think it's important. It's it's been important to me to appreciate my own experience and other people's experiences as multidimensional. Right? We come into this world carrying a whole basket of identities and experiences, and each of them deserves attention, and each of them deserves. Um, very careful discernment that propels us forward. And so for me, for example, there's been a few key experiences. One is the trauma from my upbringing in Israel, Palestine, and my military service. Another was uh, carrying a queer identity and the the pressure of, of toxic masculinity that exists in Israel as it does here and the shame embedded, imprinted on my body as a result of having a different orientation. That was a huge one. Another one that I needed to look very closely at is the, 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 the trauma of Western society that devalue our, our human, our rich human experience uh, and really um, reduces us into, into products, into um, into uh, uh, workers and really uh, eliminates any other any other lens or perspective that we derive value as in in terms of um, really our own humanity and our connection to ourselves, each other, and the world, and all of the fixations of patriarchy, of consumerism, of of capitalism that we each carry in our own bodies. So I'm just naming all of these things. <laughs> As, as a way of really inviting our listeners too to identify their own multidimensionality of identities and expressions and at times woundings that come as a result. So for me, the, 
the uh, dismantling of all of that came in many different stages. I, I've seen many different therapists because I really believe that we do this work best with the support of others, right? We can't see ourselves quite the same way as uh, another person can reflect to us. And so I've done a lot of my own work seeing therapists, particularly somatically informed because it's all in the body. And so returning to the body and cultivating the capacity to listen to myself first, listen to the inner child that's really hurting, listen to the, the places inside of me that have, deve- have cultivated an armor, right? A way of being that, that had been informed by my own wounding, um, fixations around success, fixations around what my reality looks like, fixations around what my work should look like, all these different areas, what it means to be a man, what it means to be white, what it means to be um, a queer man, right? So really identifying both the wounding and the, and the interpretation that I gave these woundings and dismantling all of that with the help of professionals. And more recently, a very important chapter of my own healing has been through psychedelic medicine. And I don't know if you know or listeners know, but there's been quite the renaissance around psychedelic medicine, thankfully, because these are medicines that have been with us um, for for centuries, if not more. Millennia, yeah, sure. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right, that only recently, in recent um, history, were... Um, outlawed for all kinds of reasons that we won't get into. <laughs> I'm very grateful for the research, this this research and the the uh, increasing availability of these medicines, and that to me has been uh, completely transformative. Hmm. You worked for the for HeartMath uh, at one point, right? Was that was that sort of your first um, your first sort of job in this broader field? Um, I, um, it was one of them. So I, I was uh, certified as a heart math trainer mm-hmm. and was fortunate enough to take this work to different places, different organizations, corporations, uh, governmental agencies. And it definitely was one of the, one of the tools that I incorporated that I found really beautiful, really helpful because all it is, is, um, utilizing, um, science, the science of the body and our nervous system to really equip us with the capacity to regulate our nervous system, um, notice when we're in a triggered or alarmed state, bring ourselves back back to the ground and, and harnessing the wisdom of the heart towards our own healing, our own potential um, to propel us forward. So it's a very elegant system that I use a lot in my work now and have incorporated practically into all of my trainings. I suspect most people don't know. I mean, I, I know quite a bit about HeartMath. Um, I've really been fascinated by their, by their work um, and, and their study. Um, but can you just give a brief rundown of, of what the kind of core mission of HeartMath is, like what their, um, what their thesis is? HeartMath is a a research institute first and foremost and they've been doing research for the past 20 years about the role of the heart in our capacity to self-regulate and cultivate um, inner guidance and so 
they've been doing a lot of research on the the part. What they found is that it's a very potent uh, intervention point. The heart um, there's a there's a very uh, highway between our heart and our brain. I'll start with that. And and traditional thinking will have us think that it's usually the brain telling the heart what to do, right? The brain is the thinking machine and it tells the body everything. And, you know, we're kind of robots being operated through this big brain of ours, which is not true. There's a lot of wisdom in our bodies that is communicated up to the brain. Um, In fact, 80% of the information that goes between the heart and the brain goes from the heart up not from the brain down. It's usually the heart, the body, that tell the brain what's going on, tell the brain what to do. And so and so through the practices of heart math, we learn how to, how to uh, communicate with the heart, connect with the heart, regulate our nervous system, come back to a, a stable baseline, and inform, inform our thinking, inform our brain, open up capacities that when we're um, upset, when we're traumatized, are unavailable to us because what happens in our bodies, we get into the alarm state, right? The, the, that um, fight or flight, as some of, us, some of us know, we think that there's a tiger in the room whenever there's, whenever there's traffic, right? We go into this big drama story or whenever we have a fight with our loved ones, well, our, our nervous system is walking towards defense, Right? And what happens in that moment is our, our cognitive capacities, our higher capacities that um, generally reside in our frontal cortex to discern appropriate solutions to problems, to think creatively, to tap into intuitive thinking, become blocked because it's our primal brain that is being activated. So through these practices, we basically bring our whole selves back online so that we can utilize our full potential and our full capacity to stay connected to ourselves, to stay grounded, think creatively, and from a coherent state, connect to to others as well. That's the foundation of the work. And it's all research-based. There's a ton of research on it. Um, The other nugget that I want to offer you, which is really my favorite piece of heart math, is through through HeartMath's research, we have discovered that the heart extends an electromagnetic field that um, that radiates out of our bodies. Researchers have identified twelve feet, but they say that with sensitive devices, it's probably a lot more. It's just a matter of of being able to to actually measure it. But measurable is twelve feet. That's, a, that's an electromagnetic field that's measurable. It's not an aura. It's not a spiritual concept. Uh, it's, it's a measurable electromagnetic field like the electromagnetic field of a radio. Sure, yeah. And that electromagnetic field carries the emotional imprint of our emotional state any given moment. So that electromagnetic field, um, when we're frustrated, it looks very different than when we're um, in a feeling of gratitude. So that's, that's one piece. Now, the amazing thing is that that electromagnetic field also has the power to impact organisms, living things, humans, water molecules, DNA that is in their field, which means that if I'm, 
staying coherent, if I'm um, staying rooted in my groundedness and my my uh, my gratitude, and I speak to John, and John is really upset, I actually have the capacity just by staying grounded to impact the field that we're both in, which which to me is truly amazing. And there's the, and that's science for you. There's science to back it up. And so the implication of this is uh, far exceeds the just our um, emotional well-being or capacity to think clearly. It really begs the question of what are we feeding the field today? How do we want to be in our relationship to each other? How do we want to be in a relationship to our communities? What can we do to actually impact the change that we want to see or promote the livelihood that we want to see one interaction at a time? And the simplicity and the, the, the implications of that, to me, are super inspiring. Yeah, and it seems like the sort of thing that religions have been um, observing forever, right? And, and like I, you know, I think of the the the, the teaching of um, you know to turn the other cheek. That the, the idea that the only thing um, that truly is effective is to diffuse and to you know um, uh, challenge the uh, the the person who is is um, promoting the anger and hostility mm-hmm. um, to 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 ground themselves right? by by um, kind of turning uh, inverting the um, the situation back uh, and and rather than responding in kind with anger um, yes. kind of forcing a um, a conversation and, and and also you know a lot of the um, sort of cornerstone teachings of Buddhism and um, all seem to say this without having the science to back it up but just basing it on um, lived experience um, right. or even 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 the you know the Vedic notion of, of karma the the idea that um, if if you uh, if you expel negativity uh, onto people it, it it circulates it's it's out there in the world it's a real measurable thing right that is that is sort of um pushed out uh to people and you know it's it's, it's funny because one of the things that i uh when, when i talk to my students about um some of this research um I, I point out to them that, that this actually isn't a foreign concept even to them. You know, they're all teenagers. And I'm like, I'm sure you've been to a party or some gathering of people and you talk about it having a bad vibe, right? Like you just got, you got a bad vibe. Right? <laughs> like That's a thing. That's a thing that we talk about all the time. That's a thing. And I give the same example when I teach it. I say the exact same thing. You've all walked into a room and you sensed when something's wrong. Yeah. We've all experienced yeah. this. Yeah, it's yeah. just that now we have science to back it up, exactly like you say, back up the the deep wisdom that religion has been teaching us. All religions have been teaching us um, throughout, you know, this entire time. And now we just have science to show us that, yeah, love is real. And that is the most impactful thing that you can do in order to diffuse a situation, in order to... to um, really propel our evolution forward uh nothing less than that mm-hmm. so let's let's get to 
what compassionate listening actually is because I, I think a lot of people would say like that's just psychology right? like that's just someone sitting down and you telling their problems and saying uh-huh uh-huh and being um very nice to them and uh warm and then sending them on their way um i think a lot of people would hear the words compassionate listening and be like that's what that is um so okay, <laughs> so <laughs> dis- dispel that notion, right? <laughs> um, what is it? Uh, how is it? How is it different from psychology? If if I if I want to solve something via compassionate listening, like what actually happens, um, and and what's the what's the reasoning behind it? Mm-hmm. And so, compassionate listening is you can think of it as a skill set. Right? It's, it's a methodology that we teach. And so, so the, the nonprofit is, is, I think I mentioned that before, it's dedicated to empowering individuals and communities to transform conflict uh, in their own lives and strengthen cultures of peace. And just a little bit about the kind of the background story, it was it emerged out of uh, reconciliation work that had been done on the ground in Israel and Palestine. Uh, back in the 90s by our founder, uh, Leah Green. And she, a few years into that work, uh, connected with Jean Utzon Hoffman, who's a Quaker. And in Quakerism, there are many traditions of, um, of, of listening from the heart, a lot of space holding. And so she was well-versed in that and kind of was kind of the originator of compassionate listening. Uh, she was also a student of Thich Nhat Hanh. And so, and so this, this, um, this tool kit is really has a lot of um, uh, influence has been influenced by a lot of these uh, lineages, um, as you said. And so, what we have now is a a skill set. So uh, we teach workshops where we offer our skill set that is all about connecting to ourselves and each other, and learning how to listen to ourselves very deeply, listen to each other very deeply. Um, uh, tuning our ears to really understand another person's emotions and needs and values, really the undercurrents underneath their behavior, and doing so in a way that that preserves the the dignity both of ourselves and the end and the person we're in conversation with. And so we teach these workshops and worldwide we have facilitators worldwide and the and we also offer um, delegations to Israel and Palestine and also recent, more recently Alabama as i mentioned where we teach those skills in the context of those areas um, uh, more specifically and so and so that to me that to me is really the point it's not it's um it's the capacity that we cultivate within each and every one of us to connect to ourselves deeply and to connect to each other deeply and to relate to, to one another from that place. Um, it has a lot of psychological components, I would say. Mm-hmm. Things like the ones that I that I've, was just talking about, how to regulate our nervous system, how to really understand the, the universal experience of the wounding that we carry. There's, um, there's a model that we use all the time um, called core wound defense, really understanding that at our core, we're... We all come from, you know, think of, think of being in your mother's belly. We, are, we all come from a place of love and compassion and connection to, to each other and to, and to source, to the universe. And then life happens. We get wounded. 
we have all these painful experiences. Um, we get abandoned. The world informs us that the way we are is not good enough or that we need to modify our behavior in some way. And to that, we respond with cultivating a very defensive layer, uh, ways of being, the um, stories that we tell ourselves about our unworthiness, stories that we tell ourselves about disconnection, you know, disconnection from each other, disconnection from the, from the earth, disconnection from the world, disconnection from our own body. And so, and so in compassionate listening, you, you learn how to reconnect to your own core, to, to your own strength, your own resiliency, your own inner resources, and, and operate from there as an individual and, and also operate from that place uh, in a relationship. Before I came to New York City, I was living in Ithaca, New York. And one of the reasons that I decided to get out of there <laughs> and go to New York City was, um, I, I remember it was, it was around the time of the um, uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq. And mm. I, I got very kind of jaded with the, the notion of, of peace and really questioning what that meant and and um, what value it had and 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 one of the, the real frustrations for me was you know I'm living in this real bubble I mean Ithaca New York is as much a bubble as you can possibly imagine because it's not only kind of a um, socioeconomic and um, ideological bubble but it's also like literally in the middle of nowhere right um, so it's incredibly isolated and and um, I got. I had remember I just remember this one day very clearly that there was a you know a peace protest or whatever uh, in the middle of Ithaca Common, uh, and you know it involved people like uh, tapping on bongos and dancing barefoot and waving peace flags. And I'm like, what? What are you, what is this doing? I mean, like, what possible? <laughs> I mean, beyond sort of like building a kind of micro community, and I think that's that should be valued. But like, how is this? changing the war in Iraq and U.S. Uh, neocon interventionalism. And, and so I, I got really sort of, I was like, I have to get out of here and I need to go to a place where people are actually connected to, to the broader world. And I know people think of conversations. Right. I know, I know, I know people think of New York city as being this kind of, you know, liberal bubble, but it's not. And you and I both know that Um, it's, it's, it's far more complex. So the reason I say all this is that I, I kind of want to get your, your own um, perspective for yourself of like, what do you want out of your work? Um, Working, Mm. working towards conflict resolution and peace and greater understanding. Um, what do you envision like the impact that that work can genuinely have on um, the, 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 the wider, the wider world? Mm. I think, I think first of all, when, when you, when you, when you transform a person, you transform the world. I don't remember who, who, who um, said that I definitely didn't make it up, but I really believe that to be true because because we're all in this interconnected soup, right? And we're each contributing our own color, our own perspective. And so, and so raising the vibration or changing the frequency or the, the orientation of one person or a group um, is, is, 
is changing the world. And I find great satisfaction in working with individuals and communities and offering them these uh, incredibly transformative tools. Now, specifically about Israel and Palestine, what I had to let go of was the notion that the attachment to seeing actual results right here, right now in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of the activism, a lot of the, the cry for change is while being rooted in real issues, real problems, whether you look at racial justice here, Israel, Palestine, whatever it is, it is completely real and beyond urgent. While all of that is true, to me, it's also been incredibly important to zoom out and really appreciate that that history takes a long time and transformation takes a long time, even when and particularly when these changes are really seem really, really urgent. And so and so I had to develop my own capacity to both be engaged in the world doing the work, uh, fighting for what I know to be true with my whole heart and passion while simultaneously zooming out and holding it all with love. Israeli trauma is not going to be resolved in a day. And I'm not the rescuer to work by myself to fix that. And I find that with, with, with healers, with activists, with anyone who does work that is rooted in the heart that's that can be a tough a tough lesson to learn and an absolutely necessary one and so what do i do i do my share mm-hmm. i do my i do my work to to um to to speak my truth to teach my truth to support people as they as they wake up and embody their own truth knowing that i'm i'm a drop in the ocean and I'm contributing to the to this great evolution that we're all experiencing, particularly now. So there is a healthy letting go of outcomes that I think is really, really needed when we look at everything that's happening in the world today while staying very active and very engaged. There's a contradiction there that is hard to grasp and very important to embody. Hmm. So I guess the last thing I want to ask of you I, I this has obviously been a been a um very anxiety ridden few years um in every corner of the world uh and, what's been going on <laughs> uh and this this decade um young as it is uh in particular right <laughs> so so where do you find yourself um has that affected your work in any way and um are you uh, can you can you maintain optimism um in in this deeply uncertain time mm. Mm. It, it definitely has impacted me personally and everyone I come in contact with, including my clients, mm-hmm. mainly because we're all, I mean, even if we don't quite sense it, we're all in it and it lives, everything that's happening, this evolutionary chaos lives in our own bodies. And so, and so I see those issues being reflected 
in in my work i see a lot of anxiety i sense a lot of anxiety in my body um but i'm also sensing i mean this is this is a major quadruple crisis that we're in right now mm-hmm. and it's this it's it's this evolutionary crucible that we're in that really demands more and more of us to wake up and not only recognize the anxiety the unsustainability of the structures that we've created but but also the opportunity in all of this because we're all in this in this soup together and and the opportunity that lies to me in this and and i think the challenge for each and every one of us is to really wake up to 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 the reimagining to what can be made out of this out of this moment what are the systems that we actually need to create what are the the changes that we need to 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 bring about in order for our whole humanity to be appreciated and expressed and celebrated for our well-being and our survival um, on this planet and so what that looks like it changes every day um, I'm, I'm finding I'm finding people in this moment really making dramatic changes uh, in their lives shedding all kinds of habits patterns ways of thinking that no longer serve I'm also sensing a lot of anxiety and a lot more polarization which frankly scares me more than anything else mm-hmm. I, I I fear that we will miss this great opportunity just because we're even more deeply entrenched in our own silos and waves ways of thinking without developing the capacity to to reach across and to evolve in our togetherness rather than our than in our separation and so that's a component that's continuously evolving the the urgency of this work and the need to adapt it to the specific the specific crucible we're in right now with kind of keeping in mind that on the other side of this crisis is this tremendous opportunity if we just allow ourselves to open our hearts and 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 see it as such and that crisis and opportunity is expressed in each and every one of us individually i mean i think um i'm i'm sure it's true for you as well that this time has met you specifically in 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 ways that brought up all kinds of crises or transformation opportunities to to get rid of things that no longer serve or cultivate new ways of being and seeing that is true for every single person before we go uh would you like to let people know where to find you on the well not find you in person but <laughs> uh where to find you on the on the internet yes um you can go on my website there's a lot of information about my work gilbarsella.com i'm also on all the usual channels facebook as gil barcella and my instagram handle is gilbarcella.coaching gil thanks so much thank you for having me john